0: support for this podcast is provided by cosmic a portland-based agency consisting of technologists storytellers and strategists who help nonprofits and b corps quickly grow revenue and impact start growing your mission-driven organization with cosmic at amplifypdx.com. support for this podcast is also provided by the pdx executive assembly a membership of leaders from portland companies Led by executives from the Trailblazers, Adidas, Yakima, and more, the Assembly's curated cohorts of executives serve to accelerate leadership development and build a meaningful network of peers, free from press and sales solicitation. Join now at pdxexecutiveassembly.com. From That Cast Creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the PDX Executive Podcast. We're back with another new episode and I'm very excited to have my next guest. Rakaya Adams, who's the Chief Investment Officer for Myers Memorial Trust and yeah you know we Rakaya and I connected a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's going to be a really good conversation about the work you know Rakaya does, but the broader kind of community here in Portland and Oregon so Rakaya, welcome, thanks so much for doing this
1: Glad to be here, Dean I just before we started, I snarked down at late lunch so <laughs> I hope that my voice is clear after eating so much late in the afternoon, but I'm delighted to be.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's one thing when we're all on endless Zoom calls, I find myself sneaking in somewhere to eat or get some water when we can, right? Right. So, um, well, maybe a good place to start. I think I would love just to learn more a little bit about you and your, your role there. So I know that's always a kind of a broad question, but love for you just to give a little uh, background about yourself.
1: Sure, let me tell you about the Memorial Trust first, and then I'll help us tell you a little bit about Burke. Meyer was created when Fred Meyer, the grocer, left his estate to the people of Oregon. Uh, he was married when his wife had her own fortune. Uh, she went on to support the University of Portland's child center, and the investments in North Portland were his wife's passion. But um, he left um, the grocery store business and a lot of real estate uh, for the benefit of the people of Oregon. And... Provided relatively little direction than what we should do. Over the years, we sold the grocery store business and a lot of, almost all the real estate, and that money went into a pot um, in about 1979. Okay. And in the ensuing 40 years, um, the portfolio has grown um, quite a bit, and we've given away about as much as the endowments were to say, which is about a billion bucks. Wow. So over that period of time. Um, we earned all that money, went back into the community, and Dallas still continues to grow because of good management. So that's how Meyer Memorial Trust was born. If Fred, Meyer. Fred Meyer was an immigrant to the United States from Eastern Europe uh, around the turn of the 20th century. And uh, he settled in Portland and started peddling food uh, like shrubs on the coast. So he was basically a fruit peddler in the beginning. And that morphed into what most people know as the Fred Meyer Vucci Store. Today, we sold the Russian business to KKR before they became barbarians in the gate. Um, <laughs> and it was the proceeds of one of the very first LBOs or leveraged buyouts uh, in the country was the purchase of the Fred Meyer Vucci Store line. Interesting. And what most people know of as Kroger today is really, is real Fred
0: Right. Yeah. It's such an iconic local brand. You know, I grew up here and, of course, and I didn't know. I honestly didn't know that full connection. So thanks for kind of giving that background.
1: Yeah, so Fred Meyer was super generous. He loved uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, Throughout its existence, the the trust has served different parts of the region. And sometimes it includes uh, Southwest Washington. Sometimes it includes cities and towns along the Idaho border. But it's always been uh, focused on Oregon. Mm. Um, And I am a Portlander, fourth generation Portlander. And I grew up in Northeast Portland. My mom's first job was at a Threadmire store that uh, was called the Walnut Park Threadmire, which would have been the intersection of MLK and Curenswer.
2: Mm.
1: When I was growing up, that neighborhood was called Walnut Park. After it was gentrified and Black folks were pushed out, it was renamed Alberta Arts, but it had it had a name before. Mm. Um, it was changed. So she worked in that in that uh, grocery store. It's where the police precinct is now, oh. I'm thinking, I think, in 1,000 Um So... Uh, my mom worked there, and over the years, I certainly benefited from the grant making that the prior generations of people who worked at Lyer made into the community. Meyer helped support SDI as it grew from a grassroots organization to huge Google service uh, uh, business it is today. They support boys and girls programs. There's a boys and girls center on LLK between Q and Alberta. Yeah. So I. Benefited from all of the grant see and the wealth sharing, and it's yeah. such a privilege to come back in a professional capacity and manage that pool of money. Yeah.
0: Did now? Did you leave for school and come back, or have you always been Oregonian? Because I'm, I'm, I love that connection. I mean, that's really special.
1: Yeah, I did. I did leave, but I left at seventeen when I went to college, and said, so "I'm never coming back to this one boys town ever again." <laughs> <laughs>
0: But like when class I got words, yeah. yeah,
1: I know, uh, growing up here for me was this, this seemed like a kind of a sleep and and I, and I wanted a more vibrant place. I wanted a place that had more Americans. I wanted a place that recognized the contribution of African Americans. I wanted to, to disclaim all of the things about Portland that sort of that makes me charming. So went to college, uh, at Carlson college, uh, stayed in Minnesota for four years. And then after that. I went to Stanford for law school and practiced in the Bay area for almost a decade. And then I went back to business school at Stanford. And from there moved to New York city and I moved back to Portland from Harlem, which was quite a, quite a transition for me, but I stayed away for 23 years, a little while.
0: And so did you, I mean, I'm really interested in digging into this if you're open to sharing about coming back because you know, with your experience and education, you could have gone anywhere in the world. And you, of course you were in New York. And so was coming back for the job, for the family, wanting to make an impact here, some of those things you left for in- initially, or I'm curious.
1: No, I'm going to try to be as honest with you as possible. Yeah, please I, do. Do. I don't want to sugarcoat the truth. I always feel like people package up their decisions and in hindsight to be so rational. It wasn't anything rational from me. Um, somewhere around 2010 or 2011, we sold the hedge fund that I was helping to rounds in the c suite of a hedge fund. And those were really difficult years from 2007 to basically 11. So I lived dog years, um, in that capacity. Um, but we, we sold it and I had an feet and I needed to be, be somewhere else for a little while. Right. And when I left Portland at 17, I really never came back for more than a few days. And I felt like my mom was nearing retirement, and I had to take a break from finance in New York anyway. So I thought, well, I'll just, you know, rent an apartment in Portland and spend a few months there and see what if think could it. And I'm a rudder, and I, I came home, and I remember it was fall. And I was trying to get out of New York before the winter came because that winter— it's no joke. Yeah. Uh, so I came here in the fall and I remember going for a run in Forest Park and the smell of Portland in, in, in the early fall when the leaves have fallen and the smell of the hummus leaves turning back into fertile soil and the pine needles falling in the rain smell. You know that Portland smell?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, in New York, I would run from Harlem down 6th Avenue to Battery Park back up to Harlem and that was barely 11 miles, maybe 12 miles. And you can only go around your, you know, Central Park so many times before you kind of lose, lose your mind. And I would sometimes take a train north to um, the cloisters. I don't know if you know me very well, but I would take a train north to cloisters and run back down to Harlem. But in any event, all of those roads are very urban roads. Um, even if I went to the Hudson Valley to run along the river, it still was It was pretty urban. Um, and so I did that route at Dwarves Park, and all of a sudden I was transported into... Like Narnia for runners to have, you know, tens of miles along the crest overlooking Portland, running safely, feeling safe as a woman runner in Twilight. It just something about that experience just hit me in the chest and made me realize that I wasn't a New Yorker. Mm. And that I'd spent so many years running away from being a Black Oregonian that all of a sudden it just hit me in my chest. So I felt more environmental stewardship. I felt more connected to the smell and the, the kind of texture of the city. It, there was no intention to come back here or to make an impact. It really was that I was pulled back by the scent, of fresh air, and the taste of clean water. Um, yeah. Just just all the sensory touches you have with the city. Like if you leave Portland and you go to a place like Tucson or San Francisco, yeah. It's a really different sensory experience, and so that—that's what got me. Um, that's what hooked me. So that six months turned into a year, and at the end of a year, I just wasn't looking forward to going back to my lifestyle of working all the time and living in a in a a in a really formal yeah urban environment. So it was really that it was the natural setting that pulled me back. And then once I was here for a few months, what became clear was that during the ensuing 20 years plus that I was away, I became authoritative. I became kind of powerful in a way that I don't want to seem immodest, but I kind of take up, I take up space, the lawyers and middle-aged ladies who do things, like we just take up space. And there were a few community meetings that I walked into in my mom's neighborhood, Walnut Park, where she needed help. And just walking in the door, I sort of changed. The power dynamics of the city or some neighborhood association trying to jam all black ladies into something they didn't want, and all of a sudden, all of the years of education and work kind of clicked. It clicked for me that just being present, I could change outcomes for my mom and her neighbors. And that began a slow process of accepting a role in, in the city that I did not have in New York, I didn't have in San Francisco. Certainly did have in Minneapolis. In those places, I was seeking Black cultural identity, and here in Portland, I feel like it's in me. I don't have to seek it out. It's just, sure. Yeah, it's here, and wherever I am is the blackest part of this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, it's really powerful to. I know it's hard to probably to reflect back, but to come back to your to home is. Mm-hmm. Um. And again, you can say you're you're one of the few true portlanders as we all know is like uh it's, they're harder to find <laughs> sometimes well the city's
1: changed so in the 23 years i was away the city picked up and i've become kind of a middle-aged lady so i've slowed down a and so our 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 graphs are here now um, connecting so portland's changed a lot over 25, 25 years since i left uh the other piece of it i think is that that my identities are not as separating as they used to be. Like I used to think, I was an Oregonian. Period. I am a woman. Period. And I am black. Period. And they really were. My my black identity was really separate from my Oregonian identity. And over time, they they've come come to be one identity that isn't so easily parsed out. So that's that's I'd, I'd say a big maybe a big change in maturity. Maybe, maybe it's a difference in authority and how he's kind of positional authority. Yeah. Uh, but I feel much more centered in all three of so now.
0: Well, I think it's a good point to kind of go into about how Portland has shifted and then the work, the important work you're doing. And I, I know I don't want to gloss over you getting the role there, but you know, when you, when you did get into, to Meyer, what were some of the things that attracted you to the, to the trust and the, the job and really the impact you could make?
1: You know, investing money at the, at the billion dollar plus scale, people think it's about money and it's really not. Money is just a measure of, of energy. So I think about the the Liar Trust, the, the the billion dollars that I manage on, on behalf of the people of Oregon, I imagine that that billion dollars was earned with small families and single mothers coming into the Fred Meyer grocery store paying for things that it took hours and hours to earn the wealth to generate so every dollar is lots of labor right there's lots of energy with earning dollars and then when we transfer that energy in the form of currency to a store clerk to buy sugar or flour or whatever we think that the energy of the wealth goes away that it dissipates but it doesn't and I think of that, that, that energy continuing through the accumulation in the, the, the grocery store business and then ultimately ending up in our endowment. And somehow we think that when people and institutions get wealthy, the, the wealth, the money itself becomes inert. Like it doesn't carry the energy to, literally the human energy to, to generate the capital. And so what, what I was attracted to was a chance to have this giant pile of energy that I could direct in the ways that I, I think are important. Um, in my prior job, which was probably my favorite job ever, running okay. the division at the Standard, um, it was great, but it was the investing was so tied to the insurance business that I couldn't be really flexible with it. Mm. But with this pool of money, which is smaller than I managed at the Standard, it was much more flexible and open. And so what it allows me to do is just like focus energy on ideas and people and concepts that are important. And that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be able to talk about wealth and financial wealth in particular in a way that wasn't about money. Because mm-hmm. money is, is a kind of vulgar approximation for what you're doing. Again, when you're thinking about a billion dollars or in the case of the state pension plan, a hundred billion dollars. That's not a dollar at a time. That's choosing what matters and where we're going to push the future, what direction we're going to push the future into. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted the positional authority to talk about the future. And that is all investing is, is is controlling the discussion, having the, the power to send energy in the direction that you want the future to go into.
0: That connection, you know, like you said, People at the cash register, the dollar per dollar, I think, is so you know, valuable to kind of remind people of that, <laughs> right? So
1: Right. And, you know, a lot of people think that, that again, uh, money or currency is just an abstraction of energy, right? That's all it is. We need some universal adapter for energy, right? And we think that money, when it begins to accumulate not only loses its energy, but its moral purpose. Mm. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I disagree with that point of view. I think capital has a moral purpose to serve humanity, not just extract from humanity. And before I was in the seat, I could just think about those ideas, maybe halfway talk about those ideas, but now I can fund them and uh, begin to kind of chip away at some of the more vulgar Perspectives we have about capital and about uh, capitalism, which I think are totally law.
0: I love that phrase, "capital having a moral purpose." Is that we you said, mm-hmm. I, I love that. Uh, well, you know, guys, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. I, I think one of the things that really stuck out when we talked a couple of weeks ago just is about you know the pandemic. You know, I was talking about my kids, and you said, you know, you're really interested. Not necessarily how is it going to affect them right now. We all know they're going through struggles. and But as a generation, and kind of from an investment lens, the ramifications of that, and yeah. you kind of brought up, so I would love to kind of pick that up, the conversation up, if you're willing to kind of talk about that.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating that people, again, think that investors are focused on money as we're not. And every time we teach a child to read or we Vaccinating a child for smallpox and polio; those are some of our most valuable investments, right? To 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 educate a child is to generate economic activity, uh, and to and to create world produce. And educating children has a cost, right? And vaccinating children to make sure they're healthy has a cost. And it's interesting that we think about education and child health as of um, social service when in fact it is the most elemental form of investing. So sure. I think about children and population level detail a lot. Um can you hear my husband affecting vacuum cleaning in the back room?
0: I can't hear it. No, that's all right. Of <laughs> course but, um, no, that's it's fine.
1: Um so so as we look out on what will happen to the second grader today, right? People think of Second graders is, is being promoted to third grade and then going beyond that to middle school. But to investors, the second grader today in 25 years is going to be a unit of economic production. And so the question is, will that unit of economic production be advantaged or disadvantaged as goes off of this year? And if there are advantages, what are they likely to be? And what we saw following the Spanish flu pandemic of the 1919s and 20s of uh, kids in particular uh, non urban settings were outside of the classroom for at least a year. And what they did was go into the countryside, they had applied math lessons, they tinkered with machines, and, and out of that year of, of applied thinking, earlier than we expect most kids to get there, we saw massive growth. Now, part of it was that. United States was a dominant dominant financial position, and we were imposing our view on the world. And there are all these other boosters. But if you if you take out the economic and imperial imperialistic outcomes, just look at the educational outcomes. What we essentially did was take an elementary school kid and said, "Hey, kid, I need you to to start to think in a multidisciplinary way as you play in the backyard." Right? Even teeter tottering is a form of of math and physics, right? And it accelerated some cross-subject matter thinking that played out over the next 20 years. And I think we're seeing that with kids, except for in this case, we're injecting technology into their interior spaces, into their intimate spaces. And so I have a hunch that in about 20 years, something, some massive change, some massive connection between human interface and our technology technology interface, we're gonna have some jumps in technology. Mm. When your second grader becomes an engineer, um and my hunch is that it will have something to do with implants or augmentation of human capability because again, we've injected technology into the interiority of these young people. So
0: I haven't even thought about it like that. I just see my son on Zoom and I'm like, I don't know about this. But you know, as someone who who's investing and you're thinking about this, what kind of things can you do now, I guess, to yeah. when we're strictly looking at the investment side of it? Yes.
1: Well, so there are some obvious things with education. So where, where, whatever happened to the after times, education has, technology has intruded into the classroom in a way that really it had not mm-hmm. yet globally. So um, we're going to begin to think about broad data as infrastructure and maybe beyond that, maybe as a human right, in the same way that we think about water, so I think um, our view about you know, broadband access, or whatever the equivalent of that will be, um, will be affordable. so, projects like SpaceX, where they're taking the rockets to, you know, outer space, but they're dropping out satellites to enable affordable um, internet connection around the globe, that stuff will become much easier. So that's the easiest. And then you need all the, the platforms to take the access down to the retail level. Um, but I'd say longer term, we have three or four huge issues with humanity that your kids will solve for us. We're handing them a bag of rocks, but they're gonna think <laughs>
2: um,
1: the first is energy storage. So I think this is accelerating um investments in how we can store renewable, sustainable energy. That's our biggest problem, right? You know, and your kid, believe it or not, reflecting light off of a mirror in the backyard to kill an ant is probably going to figure out the <laughs> some, some uh, solution to that problem. So, so energy storage is one, the second is feeding us. We have a biology challenge, which is that we can't keep using nitrogen based fertilizers to, you know, accelerate food production. So we got to, we have to figure it out. And again, your kid starting a garden at six. And thinking about germination and fertilizer and that stuff's going to lead to innovation in greenhouse and food production. So second question, the second issue facing humanity is a biology question. Again, I think your kid's going to solve it. The third big one is shelter. So one thing that's happening up and down the West Coast is that, again, your second graders looking out of the car window. At people living in tents on the side of a hill in the rain and mud and snow. And reflecting deeply about whether that seems moral or just, right? And we know how to produce manufactured multi-family housing. We know how to do it. We haven't it solved is the business challenge of supply chain integration to make that happen. Again, there are a lot of entrenched reasons why people, Gen, gen X and older, we really struggle with that for labor force dynamics. There's some, just, there's some social issues that we can't solve. But your kids are going to solve those labor force issues and they're going to reflect on seeing people living in, you know, really substandard conditions in such an abundant environment and solve the problem. So those are the three areas that I'm really zeroing in on. and I Just based on what kids are saying and what they're doing, I can see that they're going to solve problems.
0: And what I love this, because what I'm hearing from you is you're very optimistic. I am. And I am that way too. And I, I I love that lens of of solving these big problems. And I mean, as we kind of end, I think it's a good place to come back to to Portland, you know, and, and your home and, and coming back. And, you know, some of the challenges we face here and, you know, the future of, of our city and the leadership. And again, I'm very optimistic, um, but what's your thoughts? Kind of where we are as kind of a community right now. So, so some of the things we need to address. Yeah. So
1: much like investing on long Portland. I'm going long short Love it. Um, so a few thoughts about that. Portland's leadership has been a pigeon long where we swing from visionary, very visionary leadership to more management style leadership where we're just maintaining what we've done before. And 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 by the way, management shouldn't be undervalued. It's important to have people who won't mess a good thing up. Mm -hmm. Uh but I think we need to, the pendulum to swing back from the managers, the people who can maintain their downtown transportation law or the bottle or, or the Irving growth boundary, to the visionaries who can say, what will a 21st century city look like? What will the thousand-year city look like? Right. And it's going to take those kinds of visionary leaders who can describe a challenge so large that it will take many hands to solve. So we could stop wringing each other's necks and begin to work together. So I'm hoping that voters begin to promote visionaries more, uh, and that we re instill some respect in, in government because uh, these times of, of transition and transformation are so painful, and they're really painful when government isn't moderating the relationship the relationship between people living in cities. So my first thought is that I want the dreamers. I want to hear from the artists and the creatives who can imagine a life after cars, you know, dominate the city. What, what might we look like in 200 years? Um, what, what do we care most about? We want to hear your, your again, your second graders perspective. We want to hear yeah. that. So, so I'm hoping that we move to, to more visionary leadership. Um, the other thing I think we're going to have to give a hit along is that we need to pay more taxes, period. We need a substance. We need to rationalize how and gather taxes in order to have stable funding for education, early pre-K through college. We just have to fully fund of education in the state because, again, educating a second grader through college is economic activity. Twenty years, right? Later. Right. So, so it's worth it. The last thing I would say to any boomers that Listen. they listening is that there's a social contract between the young and the old. The old pay for the education of young people. In exchange for having the retirement, we've broken that contract.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: And beginning to un- to defund or underfund higher education and now basic education. We don't know how generations of Americans who've been undereducated will respond when there are more baby boomers than there are some yeah. So I, I think the, the biggest challenge we will face. In the next 20 years is the reckoning with that broken social contract. And I'm not quite sure really how it fix it. It won't be a capital issue. It won't be natural capital, human capital, financial capital. It's going to be the contract between generations that has been broken. Right. Like, like totally broken.
0: Yeah. I think we can do it. I think, I think so too. I think it's. I really appreciate you, you know, coming on the podcast and sharing these. I think if you're up for a round two, we're going to need to have do a follow up because we can keep going. But what, before we go, you know, where folks, where can folks learn more about the trusts and you know the work you're doing? And
1: yeah, so the trust uh, website is pretty well kept up, and mmtmarymarytombs.org. And then a lot of the more exciting work in doing for the Urban Forum is at urbanvisionbank.com. And I use a little name on Twitter and so I'm easy to find.
0: Okay, great. I'm not on Twitter. I, you know, I lurk a little bit, but <laughs> it's, you know, there's, it's, it's hard, but the not a joy. I know I'm gonna, i got to get engaged back. I got engaged, <laughs> but Rikai, well, thanks so much for taking the time and, you know, just really value the work you do and looking forward to, you know, your leadership and for years to come here in Portland
1: a delight to meet you. And I can't wait to meet your kids. I'll be looking at them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thanks. So All much. right.
1: Well, thanks for your time.
0: The PDX executive podcast is a production of that cast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at that cast.com and please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.